to Subtext, everybody. I'm Brian James Polak, host, producer, and person entirely responsible when things go wrong. Here's the thing. There are two episodes of the Subtext I recorded and completely lost. Both of them happened in 2019. It was actually pretty humiliating to ask these playwrights to spend time and talk to me only to lose the result and never get to release them to the public. At the time, I really had no idea how I managed to do this, lose entire recordings. I looked through everything to find them. At least I thought I did. Just a couple weeks ago, I was going through my old recordings and trying to create some order to them. I found one SD card in the pile and began clicking through all these files when I heard a familiar voice. It belonged to Gwydion Sullivan, who was one of the lost conversations. It was like a Christmas miracle. I thought it meant I would find the other one as well, but no. I think that one is lost lost. Like, forever lost. The great thing is I get to share this one with you today. Some things have changed since then. For one thing, I mention a day job I no longer have. More significantly, COVID was nothing more than a twinkle in our collective eyes at the time. Oh, the salad days of 2019. On to the chat. Gwydion is an artist who wears a lot of hats. He started as a poet, eventually became a playwright. He has had a multitude of jobs over the years, many of which we discuss here. He was the force behind the creation of New Play Exchange, ran the marketing department at Woolly Mammoth in D.C. for several years, started with other D.C. playwrights, the collective called The Welders, and is currently the executive director of the Penn Faulkner Foundation, which celebrates literature and fosters connections between readers and writers to enrich and inspire both individuals and communities. I just came up with that off the top of my head. Anyway, here's my chat with Gwydion Sullivan, recorded in the lobby of a hotel in Chicago's Loop in June 2019. By the way, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was sitting next to a trash can while we were chatting. This causes a couple brief moments of noisy confusion when people were tossing garbage at me. is that you came from poetry. I did. Right? So was poetry the first writing form that you were (coughs) really into as a young person? No, it really wasn't. As a very young person, the very first thing I ever wrote were little skits uh, with with my friends. I call them skits because they weren't, they were sci-fi or they were humor or they were, you know, goofy or they were like pure Monty Python or they right. were, you know, they were ridiculous. Um, they were fun and funny and they were meant to entertain my friends and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote for a while, I wrote for public access television during high school. So what were you writing for public access? I was on a show called Crime File, which was three like high school kids talking about different aspects of crime in the Baltimore area. I like non-fiction, like, like real non-fiction. crime? You okay. Yeah, real crime. And then I was on a show called Young Critics. And it was, again, cut me and one other person in this show uh, just doing stories about the arts. So I interviewed Ann Tyler, uh, who, was a, you know, who is a terrific novelist and who was Baltimore-based. 
And I, that was my, I, the one episode I can remember of that. It was short-lived. It was maybe a year. Um, mm-hmm. Then I went to college and sort of earned my way through college working uh, here in Chicago, where we're sitting right now, uh, for Windy City Sports as an amateur sports journalist. Where were you going to school? Northwestern. What Northwestern. were you studying? Poetry at Northwestern. Okay. Although I worked in, you know, in theater at the time, I was a you know, lighting designer or a technical director or a, I built sets or I ran light boards, whatever I could do to be around the theater because I really loved it, but I never imagined that I'd be writing for it. But I worked well, with well, incredible let's, let's people. Let's go back for a second. Uh, you were writing, you were clearly creatively engaged as a young person in high school. You were making stuff, you were yeah. writing these I things. I wrote a lot of poems in high school, too. I wrote short stories. Yeah, wrote, so yeah. you, I mean, you made the choice to go to Northwestern and study poetry. No, like, I made the choice to go to Northwestern and study astrophysics. And when that, and I got within one class of a degree in astrophysics and decided I could take a, a quarter off on the quarter system and just do writing classes because that's what I really loved. And I never went back. I ended up with a with a degree in poetry with a minor in African American history and culture, and I, that was it. And astrophysics completely. Fell. I never went back and took that last class. Yeah. It wasn't even a. It didn't even become a minor. No, it didn't even become a minor. I literally walked. I turned around and walked away. I still love science with all my heart, and it informs so much of how I think, so much of what I care about and write about. But I didn't have it. I just I knew I didn't have what it took. But you felt like you had something that it took t- to be a poet. Yeah. And where, so what was that? Where did that well, come from? Even that is a little complicated. I, at Northwestern, you have to apply to major in writing. And I applied to major in fiction. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get in. But they, but they did an odd thing. The, the professor said, we're rejecting you because we think you really need to be a poet. And I was like, I'm very flattered by that. And I enjoyed writing poems. I always had. And so I just sort of listened to them, and I did it. And I majored in poetry. I graduated. Uh, I did my honors thesis with Mary Kinsey, who was also the honors thesis for Mary Zimmerman mm-hmm. uh, a few years beforehand. But I was working with all the all the Northwestern people who were theater. Who were David Schwimmer was there, um, Dexter Bullard. Mm-hmm. It was this, you know all these years of the great theater people who've gone on to great things. Um, and uh, then I went and got my master's degree in poetry from the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins. And I, I'm telling you that the poets that I studied with in my career, uh, Robert Pinsky, Richard Howard, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mary Kinsey, Alan Shapiro, Reg Gibbons, uh, Alan Grossman, Peter Sachs, John Irwin, they're just like, no one gets to study with that many great poets who then doesn't end up a poet. And were you, uh, how much time passed between Northwestern and Johns Hopkins? Uh, months, a year. It was, a game, it was no, it was not. It was not. It was a year. I spent, went and lived in England for a year and wrote. So were all of these poets? Were you aware of who they were? Oh yeah. At the time. Oh like yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I was. I couldn't. I mean, I. Yeah. I was. It was an embarrassment of riches, and I knew I was studying with the greats. And I think it was about halfway through my graduate degree when I started to realize that the kind of poetry I was writing, w- it was very different. It was out of, it was more dramatic. Honestly, I, it was, there were big dramatic statements more mm-hmm. than it was, which I now realize were monologues, mm-hmm. you know, in verse. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it never, you know, I've, I've sort of wrote my way 
to greater and greater discovery of who I am as a writer. But isn't that true for all of us, really, at some level? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, some people stay in the form they start in, and some people I st- travel through I genres. love poetry. I yeah. read poetry. I reread poetry. But I can't write it anymore. It got very hard. I did it for five years. I taught. Uh, can you, can you, know, you articulate what it is? Uh, it's too much pressure on an individual word to work at so many different levels of meaning for the sound of the word to sound right. And I don't mean in terms of its rhyme, although I do mean that. I mean it has to sound right. Poetry has, is meant to be performed. It's, mm-hmm. It needs to sound good. It needs to have the right consonants in it, the right vowel sounds in it. It needs to then work symbol, symbologically, symbolically. Mm-hmm. It needs to have, convey the right symbols. It needs to convey a kind of rational meaning sometimes. It needs to convey a kind of dream meaning at times. It needs to, it, you had to, like, chiseling granite to make a poem. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a granite chiseler. Mm-hmm. I, my, I'm, I work in a different way, and, mm-hmm. you know. So that's what I discovered. After five years of trying to do it, I realized I was sweating in my room alone for hours and hours to then stand in front of an audience that d- didn't have the mechanism to appreciate one word right. in a world where there are now 14 billion words a second on the internet. And one that, word doesn't that matter. feeling of agonizing, <laughs> agonizing over a single word hour for hours and hours and hours and then getting to the point where you're standing in front of an audience and that word just passes through. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It right, was a level right of ephemerality that I couldn't it was disturbing. It was really troubling. Yeah. I wanted every poem to be a truly transformative experience for me and the reader and the listener. Yeah. And it couldn't be. It just we. I, I feel like we're in a world in which poetry is both ever more necessary than it ever was, and also um, more of an exile from right. the literary world than it ever was as well. Yeah, less relevant than less, ever. I don't. Yeah. Relevant is interesting, you know. Yes, people don't realize it's relevant. Right, uh, right. It's the quote about the, the poetry in the news, and I can't remember it now. The, for what it, for lack of what is found there, is the end of the quote. I find that I'm not a I'm not a poetry writer. I'm I'm a I'm one of those former teenagers that wrote like, I love her poetry, like yeah, a yeah. ton of that. Yeah. But that's not poetry, uh, from an artistic well, I mean, point of view. But I was expressing myself. But what I, would, what I was going to say was um, I have a relationship with poetry now, not as a writer, but as a consumer. And I find that as a writer, when I'm at a very particular stage of writing a new play, brand new play, barely just putting words to the page yet, I go to bed reading poetry. Uh, I haven't been I, since I moved to Chicago. It's my 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 bookshelf mojo has changed. So like I don't have like I haven't. I've fallen out of the habit of having access to like here's where the poetry books are, grabbing one, putting it on my bedside. But when I'm in it, I'm reading a poem when I go to bed, and it changes the wiring in my brain, and I fall asleep with wor- words and non-specific situations. So I'm the f- kind of floating in this beautiful creative place that um, I don't know, allows me to solve writing problems break stories in certain ways and break characters in certain ways that I'm not able to do sitting at a coffee shop with headphones plugged into my ears, which is like the status quo of 
my writing and a lot of people's writings, but when I insert poetry into my brain in that moment before I go to bed, when I'm at a very specific point of creating, it is, it is magical. And now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing why haven't I done that for two years <laughs> in the two years that I've been here because I've been writing. It's really wonderful. I mean, yeah. I keep poetry out. I'm very, very lucky to have both a library and a study in my home mm -hmm. that are really good places for me to write and create and think. And I keep poetry out in the library area um, so that when I have these interstitial moments in the house where you're like, oh, I just, I'm going to pick up my phone and I'm going to check Instagram or I'm going to do mm -hmm. that, I can also pick up poetry. Yeah. Um, and I'll read one poem and mm -hmm. just sit with it. And it's usually something I've already read and that I, so that I know very well so I can remember and go a layer deeper with it. Mm -hmm. um, but now you make me want to keep some by the bed. My, my, I do have some. My wife and I have a library in our bedroom. When we got married, instead of putting out one guest book, we took books from our personal library. Each of us contributed, I think, 15. because We had 30 tables at the reception. Uh -huh. And on every table, we put a book on a little stand and a couple of pens and had whoever sat at that table inscribe the inside cover of that book. Yeah. So now those 30 books sit in our bedroom, and about four or five of them are poetry. I think Louise Bogan is there, Elizabeth Bishop. I can't remember what else. And so those are in the bedroom, and those I, I could easily grab those before bed and do that. And, yeah. You know, that'd be nice. Yeah. yeah. I think now that I've, I've said this out loud again, I have, to, I have to go back. Yeah. And I'm moving to a new apartment, so... There you go. Everything's going to change again. There you so go. So maybe I can, I can fix that. So anyway, going back to that time you said you had the realization that this isn't right for you. Like what, what happened? And I'm not sure if it was like a, a lightning bolt moment or was like a it, slow It wasn't boil. a lightning bolt moment. I just like it was a slow awakening that I was working really hard and no longer. Man, I'd written, like I said, since I was maybe 12 mm -hmm. in all these different genres and always loved it. And I realized, wow, I'm not loving this. It's just work. And I'm trying to save the universe with every word. And I'm just feeling a little disconnected. And I realized that I was missing was the thing I'd been watching happen in some ways in the theater, which is collaboration, working mm -hmm. with other people and, and feeling my stories connect with other people. So I, I took a couple of years off. I said, I'm going to, I got to figure out my, you know, I had been living a poor life like a lot of young mm -hmm. artists. Gotta figure out how I'm gonna make a living. I went and worked at a dot com for a couple of years and saved some money, uh, and then that dot com imploded. Mm -hmm. And I did have a bunch of money, enough to take you know six months and figure out what the heck I was. And in that six months, I took a a playwriting class. Mm -hmm. so having tried and failed, I'd written a screenplay that was bad. I'd written a <clears throat> I, I, again, had left poetry. I'd tried journalism. I was a book reviewer and a restaurant reviewer for a year. And I, I tried uh, short stories again. I tried it all. And I was like, the one thing I haven't done is to actually write a play. And I took this class, and it felt like coming home. Mm -hmm. It honestly felt like, oh, my God. All of the things I've practiced over the years are all sort of brought together in this one artistic space it's collaboration it's monologues words do matter but so do symbols mm -hmm. uh, the 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 
passion and emotion of a character matters, and I get to work on them. I get to work a little bit alone and then a little bit with a bunch of people mm -hmm. to make a beautiful thing. And it was like, it was amazing. It was, it, it was instantly, you know, where I meant to be for a very long time. I, I think now it's been 15, 16 years since that moment. Mm -hmm. And I've had, um, it's so weird, just success is such a hard thing to define. I've had, by any objective measure, a successful career. But like every other playwright in the world, it feels terribly insufficient. Right. And like right. I haven't had anywhere near the success I should have had or want to have. Right. Um, but really, you know, at, at the end of the day, I've had world premieres. I've worked with good people. I, and I'm at a point now where I feel like I have fewer things to say, but I really need to say those things. Mm-hmm. The very few theatrical projects I have in me matter more than anything has ever mattered to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to churn out a new play every year. I don't actually, I don't, I don't, I don't admire that kind of work. A new play every year for me feels like, um, uh, how, how can we be doing anything truly valuable in the world by writing that fast and... I'm, maybe I'm wrong, and, and I'm open to being wrong, but mm -hmm. I take, I mean, my last play took me nine years to get to the ready point. The one I'm working on now, I've been working on for about two and a half or three, and I expect it to be years to come. Mm -hmm. Part of that is because I'm more um, methodical and slow. Part of that is because I do so many other things that I'm sure you're going to ask me about, mm -hmm. and so I have less time to work on things. But part of that is... Because I truly want to be changed by the work I'm making. Mm -hmm. And change doesn't happen easily. Change is, requires a lot of reflection and a lot of growth and a lot of listening and a lot of humility. And uh, I, I, want, I want my plays to be about that for everybody. That takes time. It does take time. I, I'm wondering, it's sort of the way you've described your journey to playwriting... In some ways, it seems inevitable that you would have found it over time because you you've constantly been investigating some other thing. Like you can't, you have this thing inside you, and it's just driven you to express yourself with the written word in so many different ways that you would have come to playwriting, and it just happens that these it, other forms came first. It's, it's true. I mean, I really feel like honestly, I've been writing like the play the play I'm working on now. I have been writing my way toward that play in so many different genres. Like literally I have a, it's a, it's a play, I can't even describe it. It would take too much of this mm -hmm. conversation <laughs> to talk about. But I have a poem for my first chapbook that is a direct precursor to this play. And that is from 1993 or four, mm -hmm. I wrote this thing, right? But it is without that, it's like a first draft of this play in 2019, mm -hmm. quite, quite clearly. Uh, that that's you, it's an inexorable march for me toward that moment. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to I'm trying to be good enough for the subject. I'm trying to get get better at what I do to live up to the demands of the stuff I want to write about. Mm -hmm. And you got to do that by trying and failing and trying and failing and learning and listening and. Playwriting has definitely been inevitable for me, although I don't think it's the... F I mean, I'm writing... My current project is for film, 
and I'm having more fun working on it than I've had working on anything mm -hmm. in quite some time. But that's also why playwriting was inevitable for me. Remember when I said the very first thing I wrote when I was like 12 were, were, the were skits. skits. Yeah. I wanted to see other people say the things that I wrote. I wanted there to be living, but including me, I wanted to say some of the lines, and right. I wanted us to right. live, um, live it out, and um, and that was where I had the true joy. And I I'm not particularly good at allowing myself joy. Yeah, uh, I've been kind of. It's like I've been fighting it for a long. I fought it for a long time, and I'm now I'm inviting it. Uh, yeah, into my, yeah. Into my process. That's good. I'm glad. I find it easy to identify uh, when joy should be happening. <laughs> oh yeah, I see that. Yeah, I see. I should be enjoying this. <laughs> All right, I can smile. <laughs> <laughs> I should keep you around to remind <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of those moments. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to actually. I'm enjoy enjoying it. this actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. That's yeah. good. Uh, what is it about uh, your your upbringing that threw you onto this trajectory? You think? You know, I really had a very non-traditional um, childhood in a lot of ways. On the surface, uh, you know, from the outside, I had a mother and a father and two brothers, and we lived in the suburbs of Baltimore. But as soon as you, that's from 100 yards away, but mm -hmm. from one yard away, um, my parents separated when I was 12. My father came out of the closet, entered a relationship with um, a person who, because uh, same-sex marriage was not legal at the time, wasn't my stepfather, mm -hmm. but was my stepfather. Mm -hmm. um, my parents stayed connected. They never got divorced. Mm -hmm. uh, we were a we were a blended family in all effects and uh, in all in all intents and purposes. We had holiday dinners together. We had vacations together, um, and in that's in 1980, mm -hmm. right? That was not the only gay character I saw on television was Jody Dallas, mm -hmm. but I had a gay man living in my home, and uh, we were uh, an interfaith family. I mean, I was knew I was an atheist from. 11 years old, but on my mother's side, we were Jewish and did Hebrew school, and I even had a bar mitzvah. On my father's side, he came from an, a blended evangelical and Episcopalian family, and it was intensely religious. Um, and, and there are other complications that are probably too personal for me to share on a podcast, but the kinds of things you read about in... Um, uh, not even tablets. It's just really drastic, horrible psychological things in my family history. Mm -hmm. um, not in my nuclear family, in my extended family, that uh, were pretty terrible. And that kind of cracked open any sense of normalcy I had in my life. Mm -hmm. and, and other than that, I was also very poor financially relative to the community I grew up in. I, you know, we didn't always have a car mm -hmm. payment or a um, you know, house payment without help. Right. Um, we didn't always have jobs in our house, whereas all my friends had Mercedes at 16 and that sort of thing. So, and, and you know, um, I didn't know who my real grandfather was until I was um, maybe 30. Actually, I didn't confirm it 
uh, I, we always, I had a suspicion at 30, <coughs> and it wasn't until I was about 47. From which side of your family? My father's father. Didn't actually know who his real father was until I was maybe um, 47. Uh, I learned that um, on that side of my family, um, my ancestors are partly Irish and partly Potawatomi Indian, which I was deprived hmm. of knowing when that would have been really cool for me to know. <laughs> and now I'm super estranged from and unable to connect with um, those, that member of my family for complicated reasons. But right. So, again, on the outside from 100 yards, sure. mother, father, three kids, up close, very different. And uh, I'm so grateful for all the ways it was different. I loved, my, my father's passed away, loved him. My mother's with me, love her. Lost one brother, loved him. Still have one brother, love him. We're mm -hmm. all very close. But it's the kind of closeness that's forged through Moving through some stuff. Yeah. Uh, in a world that was still Reagan's America. Right. Really. Where was it a coincidence that the time you started to write these these skits was around the same time that your family was No, absolutely. Absolutely uh, not a coincidence at all. It was, writing has always been for me, like when I'm at my worst writing for me is about trying to control the conversations that were happening around me so that I could steer them in the direction I wanted. Mm -hmm. And when it's at its best, it's me, it's like me finding the humanity in all the voices all around me and uh, sort of retroactively rehumanizing all the people in my life when mm -hmm. I was young mm -hmm. and inserting my own voice into that conversation in a way that I couldn't when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. What... Were you aware that that's what you were doing when you no, were writing poetry? No, no, no. I wasn't that self-aware. I mean, that's when I was 20 years old, 21, right. 22. Yeah, Do you find there's so. something about self-awareness that um, helps you in your dramatic writing? Or does it hinder? Does it get in, does it get in your way? Um, well, I can definitely be too thinky a writer. Uh, like, I can, I can psychoanalyze a, a, a scene in a way that is too judgy of, of it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, stop saying that character. You don't really mean that. When they do, that's where they are. And mm -hmm. I have to let them be who they are. But, um, yeah, that's possibly, possibly the case, yeah. When you, started to, when you started to get into dramatic writing... Was there, because you had been writing in so many different forms leading up to that, did you feel like an immediate, like, I get this form, I get how to express myself in this form? Did, was there, like, a process before you were like, oh, now I understand? Actually, I would say that it was pretty instinctive for me. Mm -hmm. Like, my first play, the characters were, like, for so many young playwrights, or new playwrights, because I wasn't young. I was maybe, I don't know, thir in my 30s. Mm -hmm. um, it's like the characters were so familiar. They were people I knew. I was taking from my life in a more direct way. It felt, it was instinctive and it was easy. But what I have found later is that it's gotten harder because playwriting is... Um, 
I'm no longer interested in just telling my story. I don't know that my particular esoteric story matters. I am interested in telling the stories that matter to others, mm -hmm. right? Or that the world needs, or that I, from what I can tell anyway, my best guess at the stories the world needs. So it's, so what the things that came easily, me speaking in the voices of familiar people, I don't get to do that anymore, right? Mm -hmm. I have to embody other voices, and that's so much harder. That's a bigger act of empathy uh, than just, I don't know, giving voice to some of the kids I grew up with or the, you know. Right, right. Yeah. This, is, this was, you know, a variation of my uncle. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. This yeah. is a variation of that Thanksgiving dinner that we had. <laughs> That's exactly the un my uncle Thanksgiving dinner. Like you nailed it right there. That, <laughs> one of my early like successful poems was Thanksgiving 1980, and it was literally about my uncle taking all the big pieces of meat off the the juiciest turkey before passing the platter, and what that did to me inside as, right. a, as a young boy. Literally, right. that is where I started as a writer. And now, it doesn't matter that it was my uncle. It doesn't. It, what matters is that's a picture of the patriarchy at work, right? Yeah. And yeah. And so I'm, I just don't, I'm not interested in my own life anymore. I just, I'm just interested in the world more than, than my own life. Uh, do you think any of that has to do with uh, the change in our, our, our theater culture, the, the pendulum swinging in a new direction? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very aware of my identities as a white person and a male cisgender male um, uh, one piece of what I left out in talking about my family my father was identified um, as gender fluid also not a easy thing for a 12 year old to understand mm -hmm. in 1980 uh, now I understand it really well and I'm really proud of my dad for living his true self um, and being who he was. He used he, she, he, him pronouns. Um, so I am, I, I'm aware of identity much more than I was uh, in the, in, as an artist when I first started because the world is talking about mm -hmm. it a lot now. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> I'm, I'm sent, here's, here's where it's landed for me. I'm sensitive that as a white, cisgender male, I better really have something to say that really matters mm -hmm. if I'm going to take up any space. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just churn shit out and, and grab the microphone, which I'm literally holding a microphone as I talk mm -hmm. to you, unless it really matters, unless it's really about transforming the culture. Mm -hmm. If it's not, I'm just going um, to stay quiet. I'm going to create space for other people. I'm going to support the work of other people, with, which I know you know I do in other parts mm -hmm. of, with other hats I wear, and, um, and just sit back. Because I've, people like me have had a lot of time to tell their stories. My story just, like I say, it just doesn't interest me and doesn't really matter so much. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I'm more aware of it. And I try and take... Uh, space with more um, intent, thoughtfulness, mindfulness. 
and with less frequency. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I want to talk about. I mean, what, you know, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to talk to you is because of all the hats you wear, and that's how I've known you since I met you. I don't know, maybe like a decade ago or so. Um, I've always known you as a person that um, was a playwright, a playwright, a playwright advocate, a marketer, a slash public speaker, right? Like, yeah. like all these different things. And at the time, I was uh, new to playwriting and working as a marketer and not wanting to be identified that way, like wanting to be identified as an artist. And I kind of looked at you as somebody on a more advanced level path <laughs> that, uh, Please. where I could be in a few years. Um, and I, kind of, like, I observed you in the way you balanced your work and, and artistic life over the years because, because of social media allowed me to peek into the world that you would expose you know, through, through Facebook or Twitter. Um, I know that I struggled personally in the years where I was working in theater administration and uh, trying to be an artist simultaneously, but working at a place that wasn't an artistic home. Uh, I'm curious if you felt similar ways over the years. So, I mean, it's interesting. So, I, for those who are listening and don't know who I am, am or what, what some of these hats are. For four and a half years, I guess, I was the uh, director of brand and marketing for Woolly Mammoth. And um, the truly amazing thing about Woolly in that time period, uh, which is still true, is that there was room for me as an arts administrator to be truly genuinely creative in the work that I did. Nobody wanted me, nobody asked me to just sell tickets to plays or just, they expected of me to be as innovative in my marketing as I would be in making art. Mm -hmm. And so it was an immensely creative job. It, it, you know, I can't even go into the details, but if you look at Woolies marketing, it's, it's, uh, we tried to rise to the level of the amazing art that Wooly was doing. It, you know, we tried to achieve as much in what we did as what was happening on stage. And the, boy, that was inspiring. That was mm -hmm. invigorating. That was, you know, creativity is creativity. It was, it, was, it was a different part of my brain. I was using a different part of my brain than when I was writing. But that's actually how it works. So I get asked the question a lot, how do you make it all work? And the answer is, when I get burned out on thinking about one part of what I do, mm -hmm. the fresh part of my brain is the other part. And I can just like duck over into there. And then when that one gets exhausted, it's like having, you know, you, we all have willpower centers in our brain and they get tired. But when you have... Um, other ones to tap into, you can let the one re-energize while you're doing the other one. Mm -hmm. So um, if I was doing a budget for a production and I'm all spreadsheety and feeling all tidy and organized and county and numbery and delighted and all that and 
because <coughs> budgets are fun if you really think about them because when you're budgeting you're daydreaming what a world is going to be like and you're saying i want to give this that much support and i want to give that this much support if you let it be creative it can be but then you get a little overnumbered and you're like wait a minute i've got this play i'm working on over here and you can go write dialogue it's a totally different part of your brain and it's not exhausted at all because it's been fallow for three hours while you're in a spreadsheet and then your kid comes into the room. I've got a nine-year-old, and he wants to play Magic the Gathering with you. And you're like, great, that's a totally different part of my brain that I haven't been using for six hours. I'll play. And, you know, that's how it all adds up. That and I only need to about sleep about six hours a night, and I'm fine. I think that uh, budgets are fun is going to be the, <laughs> the headline for this, for this episode. <laughs> you're the oh, gosh, please, no. You are the first person to ever <laughs> say. Well, I mean, you've got to let them be fun. You've got to say, you know, it would be fun to try this for this production. How much would that cost? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get more money for that? Can I ask right. for more money? For, I mean, at right. Willie, I could always ask for more money. And the, the answer was literally 99 times out of 100, yes. Wow. You know, yeah. Um, the, 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 the hidden secret for Willie is that people think, how do you do all these innovative plays? How do you do them? How do you keep doing all new plays? Yeah. We just do it. And it works. It's like this. And, and, then, and somehow the financial stability has never been a question. Yeah. I, have more, I had more financial stability at Willie than I ever heard any of my peers have at any other theater I've worked mm -hmm. with. We just, I don't know, had the guts to do it. So Howard Shaw had the guts to do it a long time ago. And it has just added up over the yeah. years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will say as a little bit of a digression, uh, because very few people listening are probably uh, either working as theater marketers or have, right, right, and right. are also playwrights. Right. But for those of us, you who, and I are in a very small club <laughs> who yeah. are who are both uh, the the creative marketing from Willie over the years has been astounding. Like I would look to because I worked for a theater that was a like kind of like a smaller version yeah. of Willie, programming very similar plays. And I would look at what you were doing, how you were talking about plays, the actual materials you were creating to uh, engage your audiences with these plays. Um, I can't say specifically, I can't point to what I stole, but, <laughs> but I'm sure there was a lot of thievery. Um, genial, genial thievery as we'll call it in the, in the theater world. Um, but it's like, you know, you had you had really great ideas, and you and your team, I'm not sure who was responsible for there what. There were five of us. But, um, you know, you relaunched, you relaunched a website a few years ago that just, yeah. like, blew my mind because we were in Thanks. the midst, my company was in the midst of trying to relaunch a new website, and I was like, God, how do I steal that without stealing that? And uh, it was it was just, like, gorgeous. You know, the website was, like, one of my proudest things at Woolly. I was yeah. really... That's actually what I was doing to support myself as a writer for about a dozen years was I was um, helping mostly nonprofit organizations and some federal government agencies and a few corporate entities like Zipcar um, rebuild their websites and, mm -hmm. and reposition their brands in the digital space. So that's what I, I worked about half time doing that and to support my writing for mm -hmm. a dozen years. Uh, the Peace Corps was a client for five years, won a couple of Webby Awards in that process, and learned a lot about how to build a website. 
And then you enter the nonprofit sector on the other side, and suddenly it's like there's no budget for a website. There's mm -hmm. no this. And I hear some of the budgets that my fellow arts marketers have to relaunch their websites, and I just cringed because Wooly gave me more than enough to do it, or enough to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Half of what I wanted to spend, but enough to do it and do the job that you saw. Um, and I'm really proud of it. But I don't know how other theaters are making it on the budgets they have. I really mm -hmm. don't. Mm -hmm. And their websites reveal it, right? They reveal they're not valuing that kind of storytelling and make no bones about it. The web is a, a kind of storytelling. Yeah, and and yeah. theaters don't value it. And the reason they don't value it is that theatrical storytelling is all too often broadcast. It's a we talk and you listen phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And that's not the web. The web is interactive. And the web, the browser is the storyteller. You craft a story by the click choices you make. And the job of the storyteller is to lay out the elements that will help you tell a meaningful story as you're browsing the website. It's, it's really in an inverted paradigm from what happens in the theater. Mm -hmm. So thinking that way is really hard for theaters and they can't understand why they would invest money in letting people do that because when you let people do that they really affiliate with your organization and they really say gee Wooly or Theater X is a place where I can express myself even though that's not how artistic directors think of themselves mm -hmm. it's really what people want out of the web so it's you know, it involves a real radical thinking shift. Yeah, it's a choose-your-own-adventure narrative. Yeah, yeah, and I've never. It's abs. I'm. I like. I'm realizing that's the truth right now. But it's never. That's not a framing I ever had in my mind until until today. There's kind of like I'm. I'm trying to uh, see your sort of like personal narrative a little bit, and I want to uh -huh, connect. Uh -huh. I want to connect your. Um, the moment you became a playwright, if you ever had that ident that I am a playwright moment, to five years ago when you started to work for Wooly full time, like what was your creative? Like what were you doing? You were living in the D.C. area, Baltimore area. D.C. Yeah, I mean it's really hard to. Say. I, I think from sort of the beginning, I've always said if I'm going to be a writer. Part of being a writer is being able to be part of a writing community. And if you're going to be part of a writing community, well, what are you going to do to kick in help? Like, I, I'm really, I'm, I, I have, I'm, I try to be generous in this world and think well of everyone. But the people I can't fathom and get the most frustrated with are people who aren't aware of community, mm -hmm. aware of service, aware of what they're giving. So by virtue just of being a writer, I'm a member of the community of writers. And I, so I want to know what can I do for these folks. So from the very earliest moments in my career, I taught. Uh, I taught middle school writing. I mm -hmm. taught at college. I developed writing curricula uh, to try and support young writers and learners, you know, students of writing. And then when I, um, when I first, the light clicked and I became a playwright and I was in D.C., for me it was, well, who are the other 
who, what is it? The playwrights? That's a real thing people do. Who are they? I started going to this one bar in D.C. called Tunnicliffs on Wednesday nights back in the day. It's not mm. true anymore, but on Wednesday nights back in the day, starting around 10 o'clock, 10.30, when shows let out, everyone who was in the theater would just show up. Mm -hmm. It was just a thing. Wednesdays at Tunnicliffs. And there would be 30, 40, 50 theater makers there. And I just started going. I lived near the bar. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would like, so what do you do? And I would just wait until I met a playwright. And then I would just try and be friends. Um, and that led to me saying, you know what? If I'm struggling to know who these people are, and they're, they're always like, oh, another playwright. It was always this energy like, oh, my God, mm -hmm. I'm not alone. I, I made a list. I asked each of them. I like literally had a piece of paper. Tell me any names of playwrights you know who work in D.C. I wrote them down. I went home. I put them all on my blog. And then I emailed them to all these people and said, here's the list. If this jogs your memory and there are other people that you know who should be added to this, let me know and I'll put them on. And we got to maybe... 40, 50, 60 playwrights. When I, at the, when I started this thing, I maybe knew 10. Mm -hmm. And then I put that list out into the world. I shared it. I, I guess it would have been Facebook by then, yeah. And uh, by the time we were done, we had 380 or something like that. It was just a ridiculous riches of, of storytellers for the stage. And I, then I was like, okay, we don't need a list anymore. We know we're all here. But I did create a DC Area Playwrights Facebook group. So this was literally just me saying, how can I, be of, how can I help? I, I have this problem. I see this problem in other people. Everybody needs a hand here. How can I organize? <coughs> Enter Gary Garrison from the Dramatist Guild, the former executive director for Creative Gary's, Affairs. Gary's the best. Gary's the best. Gary sort of got wind of what I was doing. He was like, wow, you're doing the work of the Dramatist Guild. You're organizing... You should be part of us. I was already a member. Mm -hmm. um, I had my card. Again, because I thought, well, if I give them $90, it helps playwrights. I might one day need that help. I'll, I'll contribute to that. Uh, and he asked me if I wanted to be the regional rep for DC. And I was like, whoa, what does that mean? Well, it means you get to throw a couple events for playwrights. And once a year, we'll bring you into the New York office and you'll meet people. I was like, sign me up. Mm -hmm. So I did that for about, I think, six years. Um, and at that point, I felt like I had done, A, I had done my stint. I'd thrown a bunch of events in D.C. And, um, and B, it was important for one person to not hold that, especially one white, male, cisgender person, mm -hmm. um, to hold that power. That, so I <coughs> stepped down and turned it over to somebody else. Um, the current rep is Ali Curran, who's amazing. Um, and I ran for Dramatist Guild Council, so I'm now, you know, at the national level involved with the Guild. But it was so, for me, it was, again, it was all about, if you're a member of a community, you got to ask yourself, what are you doing to support that community? So Not what are you taking from it? Lots of, there are lots, of, I, I, I completely buy into this, what you're saying, and I, I, I try to behave uh in this similar way as much as I possibly can as an advocate and uh, you a, do. Mem a member of the community. I've seen it. I, not everybody does, right? So what, why do you think you have been from the get-go, from the beginning for years and years, uh, somebody that works in this way? 
instead of someone that's like, you know what, I just want to find a way to support myself as a writer and I just want to be able to write and that's all I want to do. At the end of the day, I mean, the only answer I can give you is probably the most honest would be that it's psychological. That I just, I personally feel more psychologically comfortable when I give before I take. Mm -hmm. that's, that's like a good and a bad thing, right? It means that I take less or get less. Mm -hmm. um, but it just, um, I feel selfish otherwise. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and also, I mean, the, the truth is, and I, I'd, be, I'd be foolish not to admit this or say this, is that having done all that work has certainly made me um, uh, lots of friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? People, I, I have lots of connections with people and lots of, people ask me, like, how, to, how have you networked so much? I was like, I've never networked a day in my life. But I've made friends. Mm -hmm. Like, I ask people how they are and how their kids are and what they're doing and where are they from and what do they care about and that's networking. That's mm -hmm. it. That's all that. That's all it is. It's like it's friendships. If you mm -hmm. do it right, it's just friendships. Be there for people. Give them a hug or a, a, a resource if they need it or you know. So. <coughs> I think it's the, the practice of living otherly and living that way has definitely, you know, they say if you do that, it's going to come back in your favor seven times or whatnot, mm -hmm. you know. I don't know how much I believe in the new agey version of that, but in practice, it's actually been true for me. I, have, I am rich. I am flat out rich with friends. Mm -hmm. I am I'm just like incredibly rich with friends. And with, with I'm just surrounded by generosity, and um, and and it's absolutely profoundly humbling. And if we weren't in a hotel lobby right now, I would probably tear up in talking about it, because I've been given. I feel like I've been given way more in this world than I ever gave. Uh, so, yeah, I'm actually gonna tear up a little bit as I say that. It's true. I just, I feel very, very, very lucky. So, I don't know. Maybe it is, at the end of the day, selfish. <laughs> a selfish way of being selfless. I don't know. I don't, I don't mean it that way. I am in, I'm a little bit of an embarrassment to my uh, undergrad degree in philosophy because I would be able to say what <laughs> Immanuel Kant has said about uh, selfless acts, but I can't quite remember. <laughs> Somebody tweet at me. Yeah, please. yeah. Um, one of the gifts you have given to the playwriting community, or I don't know if you feel comfortable taking as much credit, but like uh, you were part of the team that created and works on the new play exchange. And uh, I have witnessed this thing, this, this thing. I was an early adopter and uh, an early advocate for it. So I've been watching it from pre-launch, you know, where I was, hearing you talk about it to to launch and see how it has created new communities where communities didn't exist before it has it has um given playwrights opportunities to advocate for others where perhaps they didn't have channels to advocate before and it has gotten so many playwrights productions and not sometimes maybe not a production because those are just so fucking hard to get 
but they're plays seen, which is like the first thing we want is to be seen. And this platform has has really done that, and I've watched it over the years, and I'm just I'm just so thankful and amazed by it, and um, really happy that it exists. Yeah, you know, um, I'm as astonished as you are. <laughs> I I I am truly uh, like not I I can't I just honestly can't believe how wildly it has exceeded what we what I imagined it could be. So the I mean the 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 origin story of the new play exchange is um, sort of two there's like a twofold beginning. On one fold it's the National New Play Network um, was envisioning something that they called the back end literary office. You know, they're an organization mm -hmm. of theaters that do new plays. And so they were asking, what resources can we provide on the back end for all these new play companies to share resources? And that's how they were thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, is there some file share we could create where they could all put their scripts or their notes? Or, is, you know, how could they build an infrastructure? And so they defined something um, that was more like a, sort of like a file share, or they called it, I think, the back end literary office. And they raised a lot of foundation money to support the development of this. Mm -hmm. and at the same time, I wrote a manifesto on HowlRound. It was the longest thing they'd ever published. And they, that was, they made me trim like 3,000 words out of it. Oh my God. And I said, uh, you know, I called it the New Play Oracle. Because yeah. I was trying to be... I remember this. Theatery, right? I was trying to like Oracle, let's consult the Oracle and find new right. plays. Right, it sounds Greek. Yeah, it sounds Greek, so <laughs> let's do that, right? And even part of me inside hated that. But there, there you go. I did it anyway. And I just said, the field needs this. And it wasn't... Like, I get a lot of credit that I do not deserve for being the voice that said that. Mm -hmm. Because in truth, there were other voices saying a similar thing at the same time. There were other playwrights out there dreaming up. They're like, what if there was a database of plays? Or it was, I remember something that was a project... Boy, I want to say it was Tony Adams, Halcyon Theater, and maybe Travis Bedard. The, something called the Compass Rose that they had in mind, and I don't, I don't, I really don't remember the details. My my point is, it was in the air. Mm -hmm. I just put it down in writing, in seven thousand words or whatever on mm -hmm. HowlRound, and said the field needs to do this, uh, for these reasons. And uh, well, the NNPN folks saw that and said, well, wait a minute, we've got the resources to do that. Let's hire this guy to do it. And since there, we're in D.C., and I was in D.C., it was an amazing confluence. It was and like, you didn't have a relationship with them beforehand? I, can't, I honestly can't remember. I am also an NNPN alumni playwright that commissioned a podcast play for me. Mm -hmm. That might have been before this, but and I had a relationship with them in that we were both theater people in D.C., right. both theater right. organizations okay. in D.C. It was Jason Loweth. Who's <coughs> now the artistic director at Olney Theater? He was the executive director of NNPN at the time. Um, uh, now it's Nan Barnett. And so, yeah, they hired me. And I mean, we were smart in that we spent, I spent a year and a half traveling the country, meeting with mm -hmm. playwrights, artistic directors, dramaturgs, literary managers, agents, publishers, actors, directors just asking everyone who would talk to me to say, if you had this kind of thing, 
What would you want it to do? How would you value it? How would it be part of your life? Because I knew instinctively I could not build the tool that I thought the world needed. Mm -hmm. I needed to build the tool that the world told me it needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that also meant parsing between conflicting needs. So agents wanted one thing, writers wanted another thing, directors wanted another thing. Finding the commonalities and building the tool, like our, my, my North Star was build the tool that serves the common good of the American theater, mm -hmm. not any one sector. Not because even, you know, I knew that as a playwright, people were going to say he built a playwright centric tool. I really didn't want to do that. I really wanted to build a, a, a tool for the entire new play sector. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. That meant, <coughs> excuse me, that meant, um, Asking a lot of questions, staying humble. When someone questioned your idea that you thought was the right answer, just say, you know what, you're right. I haven't considered that. And mm -hmm. so we spent a year and a half doing that, and then we hired a firm to build what we had architected. And we still use that same firm today. They're amazing, Mosswood Consulting, um, Colin and Rand Sagan. Uh, and they have built and, and maintained the New Play Exchange from get-go. And mm -hmm. so... My, my official title is project director of the New Play Exchange, but I think of myself as the, the chief architect and evangelist. Mm -hmm. So anytime we got to build something new, I lead the process of consultation with the field to figure out what that new thing should be and then lead the process of building that thing. And then I go around the country talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm here right now in Chicago with you because... I just spoke at the LMDA conference an hour ago, which is why my voice is so rough, uh, about some new potential developments for dramaturgs. Mm -hmm. um, and really, I would say, it's, people don't often know this. When we launched the New Play Exchange in the first year, we had this you know, ambitious goal to sign up 432 writers. I don't remember how we got 432. Okay. I okay. don't know. It was like... Maybe in this month we'll get this many, this month right, we'll get, okay. and it added up to 432. And we thought, boy, if we can do that in the first year, to convince 432 people to spend 10 bucks or whatever it was at the time, well, we got 432 in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And we're at 6,641, I think, right now, writers, in four and a half years. Which is, I mean, the Dramatist Guild has 8,200 members, and mm -hmm. that's 100 years old. Right. And again, that's, I'm not dissing them because I'm a Dramatist Guild council member and very proud of it. It's just different fields. But, like, we're approaching them, you know, the same size, which mm -hmm. I, I never would have thought in four and a half years we would have gotten there. But I think we may be on to something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you really are on something. If there's anybody listening who has yet to uh, hear anything about New Play Exchange or, or is a playwright and is not on NPX, um, you know, get thee on there. <laughs> get, hi thee to the it's, computer. It's like, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk. I know, like, uh, a lot of playwrights talk about the value of having, like, a web presence or being on social media or having a website and all these things. And there are costs to all this and... Um, there's a certain level of personal exposure that people aren't comfortable with on social media, which I completely understand. But uh, if you are a writer of plays, your intention is for these plays to be performed by people. And uh, the pipeline, as we, you know, lots of us have talked about for years, is a challenging thing. And, and New Play Exchange has created a multitude of pipelines 
there are pipelines now all over the place. Yeah. You know, it, uh, as they say, the, the internet is a series of tubes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but that's how I see New Play Exchange now. It's like a series of pipelines. Um, it may not be as big and powerful as like the mighty pipeline we talk about, but it's going to get your play out there. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it honestly, for, I mean, the I think it's $12 a year now for a writer, so that's a buck a month. Yeah. To make sure that your plays are where people who look for plays can find them. Yeah. Because if they're, this is, I, I say this line a lot, people are going to cringe because they already know what's coming. When your plays are just on your hard drive, the only people who can find them are the NSA. <laughs> And they're not producing much oh, these days. God, so, they like, don't. yeah, they don't produce enough. They really don't. So, um, you know, you just—it doesn't cost you much to do this. It doesn't cost much in time. It doesn't cost much in money. It, it, but it costs you a lot if someone goes there to find you and you aren't there. Mm-hmm. We—I can't tell you how many artistic directors who say now to me, literally at TCG. I was, spoke at TCG two weeks ago, and an, uh, Jason Parrish, artistic director of Florida Rep. Yeah. Spoke up and said, when I hear about a new writer or a new play that someone says I should be interested in or I just catch a whiff of something, I go first to the new play exchange to find them. And if they aren't there, I think they aren't as serious as other writers. I then might, if I have extra time, go to Google to try and find them or find their website. But I've already kind of lost faith in them by the time I do that. And really, I keep New Play Exchange open as a tab in my browser at all times. Wow. It's like a resource. Wow. So, like, if you're not there, what are you doing? Like, yeah. you're not as, you need to be there, yeah. period. Even yeah. if you don't put up much work, you got to have a profile. You yeah. just do. And if you're looking for work, if you care about new, play, new, new plays at all, why aren't you there as a reader? Finding, you know, that's where they are. There are now more than 26,000 scripts by living writers in 30 different countries and every state and territory in the United States in mm-hmm. our database. What, that, that's where they are, so if you're looking for them, why aren't you looking in the one place where they are? So. I have personally benefited <laughs> as a playwright and a person that produces plays. I, awesome. I, I had a play produced that was found on MPX, and that was wonderful. It was at a private school in New England. I got a trip home. Yeah, I'm yeah. from New Hampshire, so I got a trip home out of it. Yeah. It, was, it was wonderful. Uh, but I use it to find plays. Yeah. Um, I produce a series of play, a season of plays at my day job. Um, so I'm constantly engaging with it and like looking for student productions and looking for materials for classes that I teach. I'm always on it. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I really love it too. And, uh, I kind of proselytize, which is why we're, yeah, you've been, you've been taking some time (laughs) here to, uh, continue to get the word out. Yeah. Um, Un- unpaid advertising. Yeah, thank right? you. But actually, well, I mean, honestly, that this is we've ne- we don't really do much of that. We do. It has grown by human interactions. It's right. grown by like our human presence on behind our social media accounts. It's grown by me going to a lot of conferences and talking to people about it one on one. It's grown more than ever now by um, theater makers recommending it to other theater makers because it's a movement. It's not, we're not a for-profit organization. Right. We're a non-profit organization. We're not out to make money. We're out to serve the field. The only reason it costs money to join is because 
it's a common good. We're it's a it's a collective. We're socialists, right? Right. Everyone is contributing a little to a thing that's owned by everyone, and we made it the prices as low as they could be, so that no one would feel like they couldn't belong, um, couldn't join. It's two right. lattes right. To, right. for a year, you know. Um, so anyway, you exist in a you exist as a because you do so much work in so many different areas. Uh, and you and by benefit of living in DC in the DC area, you are very accessible to New York. So you are you know part of the Dramatists Guild Council. You've been a Tony voter. Um, and one thing that I admire so much about the New Play Exchange uh, is the sort of like democratization of of plays because there is such a New York focus. So much when people talk about theater, they. Uh, you know, they start with New York. They start with what's on Broadway and off Broadway, and that what's in the New York Times is kind of like the measure. Um, but you're kind of like a um, an avatar for us, or a, <laughs> uh, a us us being the people in the regions, right? Because you exist in both places simul simultaneously. Yeah, I'm weird in that way. Uh, I, there's, like, there's nothing wrong with work in New York. It's wonderful. I mean, I, yeah, I am lucky to be a Tony voter, which means I see a lot. I see everything that opens on Broadway in a year, and um, I saw some amazing things this year. It was a very strong year for plays in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm, I'm in my heart. I actually am a very, very strong believer in locally grown culture. I, I think that our field is doing a very bad thing by uh, turning New York, LA, and Chicago effectively into net exporters of culture mm -hmm. and every other city in America essentially into net importers of culture. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one project I've worked on for six years is um, analyzing the demographics associated with uh, plays, playwrights, and directors in the DC theater scene. Uh, and we could talk for 10 minutes about that, but we won't. Uh, but one data point out of that study is that about 30 to 33% of the plays produced in D.C. every year were written by people who live in D.C. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's not true. Are new plays. And about 16% okay. of the plays in a good year produced in D.C. were written by people who live in D.C. So 16% is actually an incredibly high number for a city that's not New York, LA, or Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, but it should, I really think that it's, it's really not, it's not very efficient of us to move all our artists to one city, to one really expensive city, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, or two or three expensive cities, and then make them live there and then export their work all over the country. And then it creates uh, this, this misrepresentation of the culture as being... Uh, urban, mm -hmm. more urban than it is. Mm -hmm. It alienates, sorry, uh, uh, rural and suburban audiences and audience members in, in small cities. It doesn't let them see their selves reflected on stage as often as they should be. It marginalizes uh, artists who live in Keene, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. or who live in mm -hmm. um, um, Ottumwa, Iowa, or who live in um, Madison, Indiana, Shout out to David Lohr. Um, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it makes it hard. And it's not, it's not ultimately the path to health, I think. 
Yeah. I think um, we need theaters are going to have to pay the debt someday that they're incurring by ignoring the need to develop artists, not art, artists in their where they live. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think art that's made by members of a community for members of a community that isn't ever intended to travel, it may travel but isn't really intended to because it's supposed to speak to the specific conditions of the community in which it exists. That's the path to wisdom, if you ask me. Is that part of the motivation uh, behind starting the welders? It is a piece of that, yes. It is a piece of that. That was a complicated thing that had other pieces involved. I'm happy to tell that. Yeah, please tell yeah. us, why did, why did the welders start? Uh, so the welders is a DC-based playwrights collective. Um, for those who don't know it, um, so we all know about 13P and what they did. 13 playwrights, they produced one play by each playwright, and then they imploded and left the world the gift of their inspiration and their blueprints. Intentionally for how they did imploded. It. Intentionally imploded, yeah. yes, I'm sorry. Yes, very, they, they, they said there's a planned obsolescence in what right. we're doing, and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And after they imploded, you know, there was a lot of, this is when I was um, networking and building. Um, infrastructure for activism in D.C. among playwrights. And there were a lot of people who would say to me, hey, you're doing all this work. You got lists of playwrights. Why don't you do a 13P for D.C.? Mm -hmm. And I would get asked it a lot. And, and then I would notice other people saying, why don't we have a 13P? Or let's, we should do a 13P. And I guess that wasn't enough for me. That was like, I get it and I got it. And it was playwrights saying yes to themselves. And there was nothing wrong with it. But I just felt like something was missing from it. And then, you know, the, the, the origin story, if you will. Boy, isn't it interesting how comics terms have infected our way right, of talking yeah. about things. Right. But the origin story of the welders is one evening, I started an email train with two of the other wel founding welders, Ali Curran, who's now the drum to skilled rep, and Renee Calarco. And I said, so you know this conversation everyone's been having about 13P and DC? You know, what if we took that seriously just for one email conversation and, and asked ourselves, what would be the way to do it that would actually feel good to, our, to mm -hmm. us? Mm -hmm. And honestly, it was like a, quite literally a seven-hour email conversation. It was so dumb. Like, we should have gotten on the phone or <laughs> right. made it a G-chat. Right, right. And we've actually <laughs> since tried to find this thread, yeah. and we can't find it. But it was slowly over the course of these seven hours, like we got our dinner, we were email. It was literally an, a bizarre email uh, exchange. We realized that the missing thing for us was what if we built it and instead of imploding, gave it away mm -hmm. to another generation of writers to then do the same. Like, so that it wasn't about just us getting our plays produced. It was about us building scaffolding for the community, building something that would outlive us, that others could have, so because we already, all of us, all of the founding welders had some, some, you know, some of us were newer, some of us were more experienced, but we felt like we'd been given a lot by our community and we wanted to give back. Mm -hmm. So by the end of that email exchange, we knew the other people we wanted to reach out to. Um, we reached out to them and all, f there, there was an original group that was slightly larger than the folks who launched it. A couple of people dropped out for 
life-changing reasons. Um, but we pretty much had the entire idea. And uh, <laughs> within a couple days, we had um, Bob Bartlett and Kellyn Jennings. And the five of us sat around, and we realized we needed um, a sort of executive focus, a member of the welders, somebody to give us uh, leadership. Mm -hmm. And there was only one human being who was right for that, and she was perfect for it, and that's Jojo Roof, who's now the managing director of Theater J. Um, so, yeah, so we sort of said, all right, so now we're a thing. We gave ourselves a year to be in secret. <clears throat> making plans. <coughs> we did a photo shoot. We made a brochure. We built a website. We raised money. We opened bank accounts. We established a 501c3. All before you told all the world. All before we told the world we existed. We got, um, uh, started to put together a board of directors, wrote mission statements, named the company. Boy, that was a fun conversation. We established the order we were going to go in. We sort of divvied up, we made sort of plans and infrastructure and a way, it developed a way of working, uh, everything, so that when we launched, we would already be running. Mm -hmm. um, and really, that was the best, that was so good. I mean, really, what honestly happened in that year was we fell in love with each other. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing that happened. We fought when we needed to fight in that way that's like productive fighting forward toward new insight, like right. fighting for each other or fighting for an idea. We, so we disagreed until we didn't. Mm -hmm. Like we did the real hard work of consensus and built, I mean, these are my best people in the American theater. They just really, I would do anything for any of them. We still, we go out together, we go to plays together and people are like, it's the welders, it's the, and it's <laughs> like, it's a little bizarre. Um, but so what, what you did was you built this infrastructure. You produced a play by each one of you as part of the yeah. group. And then you gave that whole infrastructure. We right? did. We your gave bank the, account, your the bank website, account, the website, the, the, uh, the board of directors, the audience, the, the five ones, everything. We gave it entirely away to a new generation of playwrights um, who have done, continued the tradition. They've done amazing work. Very different. It's about, you know, it's players taking creative risks in some cases because they are in charge and can finally do the things that their their visions have led them to do without waiting for permission from a gatekeeper. And then they have announced the third generation that they're giving it away to. And it's like I've had a grandchild. It's amazing. And, and that, to me, when the they announced the next group, the third group, yeah. Uh, again, watching from a thousand miles away, I was like, it worked. Like, it worked. That's it worked. when you know it worked because you can force a handoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And you can struggle through a general, yeah. but they made it to a third. It's kind they of They did. And, and, so and you know, part of, part of why we made it this way was because what we, we wanted to build a scaffold or a platform. We didn't want to build a bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And that's what 501c3s are. are. Mm -hmm. They end up being more about their own survival than they are about the work. It's in, not, not in the worst cases. They end up being more interested in their own survival than in innovating and serving a changing world. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to build in change mm -hmm. so that new people would take it over and do what they thought was right for the present moment. It wasn't... We didn't want to define for the future what the welders should be. Mm -hmm. So the second generation did it differently than we did. 
and the third generation is going to do it differently than they did and mm-hmm. then we did. Uh, we're still involved. We're still there when they need us. We still participate when they want us to. Going to an opening of one of the shows in a couple of weeks, I can't wait. Um, but it's their thing. And it's entirely their thing. There's no, we're not even, I hope they wouldn't say that we're even like shadows hanging over them. Mm-hmm. We just, we did our way and they did their way. Mm-hmm. And, they did, and and that's, I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, it's I really beautiful. love it. I can't, I, I, you know, we had it for four years, so, you know, one year in secret, three years in public, mm-hmm. or maybe three in change. The next generation will have had it for three and a half to four years by the time they're done, which is January. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, or I don't know when this is airing, but January of 2020. Right. And then, uh, and then they'll, the next group will take over for another three years. It's, and then so 2023, I get to like, yeah. see it again. It's beautiful. It's very it's beautiful. great. Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about uh, your, your plays. The, as, oh, right. Know, I'm a writer, too. Yeah. Art, um, which I'm very much interested in. But there is one particular play that I want to hear about. And that is, and I'm not sure if this is a welder play or not, but it's the play that was, it was, I'm, you probably know what I'm talking, because it's like, it was like a solo play. It was oh, like, yeah. it was yeah. like a, that was my welder show, individual yeah. performance. Can you, <laughs> I know it's like a mystery to me and I'm fascinated <laughs> to find out about it. If you can talk about it. Sure. It's called Transmission. Um, and it was my welder's project. And when you just, when I describe it, you'll be like, yeah, this is the only, you know, the only place that would world premiere this would be something like the Welders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a. It is a. Oh, it's hard to describe. It's a fifty-minute monologue, followed by an audience discussion, followed by the mono- monologist returning mm-hmm. to lead the audience in a ritual. So that's like the genre description. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's actually two there's two characters, as it were, the performer and then what I call the host is the person who leads this discussion. It's important to know that this is for an audience of 20, intentionally for an audience of mm-hmm. 20 people, uh, and that there's absolutely no distinction between the set and the um, audience. So the audience... The, um, the set is a sort of club-style living room, vaguely, front, not vaguely, like a late-30s-style living room mm-hmm. with chairs, big wingback chairs and couches and uh, eight or so antique radios from the 1930s. So lamps and carpets and tables with dishes of candy on them. You're basically in your grandmother's living room or you're in a living room from the 1930s. Right. Um, And so you come in and there's 20 people and most of them are strangers. And then the performer delivers a kind of sermon on the viral evolution of culture from the radio age to the present. And the sermon is sort of delivered in concert with voices from the radios. And it's very participatory. The audience is eating the candy, is writing notes on note cards, and mm. really having this like fascinating dialogue about 
John Coltrane and Thomas the Tank Engine and virology and epidemiology. Um, and then the performer leaves and the host returns. And these 20 people who are strangers have a conversation about the beliefs they hold. And on beliefs on period. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing a really horrible job of describing this because it's it was a tra it was a genuinely transformative experience for people. Um, when I tell you, so it was set up as a 50 minute monologue, and then we thought it would be about a 30 minute conversation for people. Right. And then there's like a five minute button where the where the performer returns. Mm -hmm. We could never keep the conversation to only 30 minutes. People at 45 minutes, they were they were full on still talking. Right. But I don't know why I believe this, and what do I believe? And I, now I'm questioning my beliefs. And here I'm, and they were talking with strangers, because we would have them move. You're not talking about this stuff with the people you came with. You'd end up sitting on a love seat, a plush 1930s love seat, with a stranger, having an incredibly heartfelt, heart-to-heart, deep conversation in which you challenge your most cherished, preciously held, deeply held, long-held beliefs. And then, and then people just didn't want to stop. Once I, once we created the space for them to have these conversations, they recognized in themselves an incredible hunger to do that. Well, but what was it in the <coughs> in the fifty minute monologue preceding it that? It was a that, monologue that sort a, of really about how ideas propagate, okay, and how how ideas want to be replicated. <laughs> the way ideas colonize, and I'm using that word intentionally, ideas colonize our minds mm -hmm. and inspire in us the urge to repeat them so mm -hmm. that other people um, absorb them and pass them on and pass them on. So it's really actually the, the, the true origin is the word meme. Mm -hmm. So it's meme in the original Richard Dawkins sense, not, you know, and I hate to quote him as a, well, whatever. Um <laughs> Meme in the sense of a unit of a, a unit of thought or a unit of a, an idea, okay. right? Not meme in the internet sense. This right. meme. Um, London bridges falling down is a meme, right? It's a song. It's sung in virtually every language in the world, even in countries where many of the residents have never heard of London, right? How mm -hmm. freaky is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. London Bridge is just some abstract thing, but it's falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. Why? Why does that exist? It's propagated. Our mm -hmm. minds are somehow, that idea has taken up residence in our brains and gets shared, has shared, been shared all over the world. Right. Superman is an idea that has been shared all over the world. M you know, some large percentage of the world is aware of that idea. And it is fixed. And, and, and it doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. It means very different things. But it's propagated. So this is a 50-minute monologue about the ways in which ideas propagate. And it used to be radio. It used to be voice. It used to be that no idea would propagate unless one human being used his, her, their voice to speak it to another human being. Yeah, yeah. And then we invented writing. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And then we invented printing. And now one idea could spread to thousands of people. And then we invented the internet. And one idea can spread to a billion people, right? Mm. 
<coughs> and so my theory is that's not good for us. Mm -hmm. right? We are, we are evolutionarily, we have 100,000 years of evolution, whatever, to make us good at hearing one idea, one human being to another. And when it transfers from one voice to another, there's, you're not exactly hearing what I'm saying. You're hearing it filtered through your own mind, and so it changes a little with you, changes a little with the next person. There's a healthy kind of natural evolution. But um, printing is brute force. The same words appear in front of everyone. Mm -hmm. There's no transformation. Mm -hmm. The internet is even more brute force, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we're, it's not healthy for us. We're not living in a very healthy world right now. For, for The ideas have taken over, right? And so this is a play about how we can fight back. How we can... Mm. It's a monologue about how we can fight back against the, prop, the, the out-of-control out propagation of ideas, which, may or, which are or are not healthy for us. We don't ever ask why we believe the things we believe. We just believe them. We go on and believe them. Whether it's good for us or not, right? <coughs> it's like smoking. Someone said, hey, I can grow this plant and I can crush it up and roll it up in a thing and I can smoke it. And the, you keep doing it because it feels good in the moment, but it's not actually good for you, right? Right, right. So we don't have any mechanism to figure out which ideas are good for us or not. We don't have any idea. Right. Smoking is a great metaphor. It's, it's sacrificing the future for the present. Yeah. 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 So we're living in a culture where that's a sharing culture and a reposting culture and a retweeting culture. I'm, not that I'm not on Twitter retweeting, believe right. me. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to write a 50-minute monologue that was like, hey, look, it used to be before the age of but up and through the age of radio, even radio was one voice to many voices, but it was still a voice into an ear. That was like the last moment, you know, that in the printing press is the earlier one, where we, like, the, the nature of being a human with a mind changed permanently. Mm -hmm. The nature of being a human with a mind changed forever with those things. Um, and so I wanted to look at that. So when I spend 50 minutes talking about that, and it's not just me, and I performed it as well, right. and, uh, although it's been performed since by others. Um, it, it, uh, it was not about, um, it's, the monologue is very, when I say interactive, I mean, I mean I, there's some spoilers about shit on the candy that people are eating and uh, okay. about viruses and there's some kind of like, oh my God moments. People are like, there were people who in the darkness, <gasps> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. couldn't handle what they were experiencing. It was very intense. So, yeah, it's a, it's a the very theatrical 50 minutes. And then they're like, lights up, and you're in a living room, and you're with 20 strangers, or the person you came with in 18 strangers. Right. Now, you've ju I've just opened up your brain. Now you do the brain surgery and figure out why you believe what you believe. And then the, the monologist returns and says, okay, we need a closing ritual to close this out. So that is transmission. So the, the, the button is not a continuation of the monologue. It is a... No, it's a, it's a, the button is... A, I don't mind spoiling this. Before you walk in, the moment you walk in and you're seated and the host seats you and says, please have some candy, 
take a seat, sit mm-hmm. anywhere you like, well, be at home. There's books everywhere. There's, it really feels like you're sitting in a living room and not like a theater. Mm-hmm. There's nothing thea- like theater-like about it, but it's very theatrical, right? Uh, so the host says, here's an index card and a pencil or a pen. On one side of this index card, write the name of a book you really treasured from your childhood and a belief from your childhood that you still hold today. Mm -hmm. And people would write down the little engine that could and people are inherently good. Mm -hmm. Or they would write Harold and the Purple Crayon and it's important to be creative. Whatever their belief was. Mm -hmm. And then during the 30 minute, which became 45 minute or an hour or longer conversation, they would write on the back of the card a belief that they wish they didn't hold. Okay. And the ritual is about, um, it's a, it, it's a, uh, the spoiler-y <laughs> moment, at the, like the, the climactic moment of the monologue is me taking a book that matters a lot to me and drowning it in a, in a bath. Okay. Like, Literally destroying a book in mm-hmm. every performance. And people are invited to take the belief that they hold and wish they didn't, or the belief they held, mm-hmm. and drown, drown it in it. the same bath so to get rid of it. Yeah. Mm. Now, people just like walked out into the night like, I've never had a night like that before. <laughs> Why isn't all theater like that? Why don't, and you know, except for the people who come and like, I wanted Hello Dolly. What yeah, am I doing? Right. You know, yeah, right. Sure. Because yeah. there were some, but most people knew from the marketing. Hey, I'm I'm getting into something that's different here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but nobody left who wasn't like profoundly changed by this. And that's again, that's that's why I did. That's it. awesome. I didn't. Yeah. You know, twenty people was enough for me. Mm-hmm. Although I've now I've since done it for I think one audience was fifty, eighty. Mm-hmm. So it can be done. You just need more people to host the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Theaters everywhere. Theaters. Contact me or download <laughs> it on the New Play Exchange. <laughs> Newplayexchange.org. Dot org. There you go. Yeah. Um, we should probably stop. We could probably go on. Yeah. But we should stop. I feel like I haven't even talked about my day job. My. Uh, yeah. Not that I need to, but like I'm also the executive director of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. Which I don't. I don't even ask me how I do all that. And this, I, but it's a great place to be, and I'm excited to be there. It's new. It's I left Wooly to take this position um, five months ago, and you know, getting to reconnect with fiction writers and poets. Right. So and, you're coming. You know, this is actually a great point because in some way it's like coming back to your. It's beginning, weirdly right? full circle. It is totally. You know, giving out the Penn Faulkner Award and being part of that process and recognizing a truly amazing work of fiction. This year's winner was uh, Call Me Zebra by Azarine Vanderfleet Olumi, which is like a towering achievement mm-hmm. uh, in fiction. Um, is, uh, and serving the, right, the, the school, uh, the students in DC public and charter schools that we serve, which is again about, you know, so we bring um, free books and writers into classrooms mm-hmm. in DC. And being able to do that is again it's like so back to where i started teaching young people and helping young people and i love it i love doing it i'm so proud to be able to do that 
So now I got my plug in. I feel good about that. Yeah, you should feel good about it. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, what? I can't believe I, I'm not plugging my series. Oh, yeah. All, all, all Souls. Souls. Yeah. You got this web series called All Souls. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, now I'm, and this I, is, this is me stealing a little bit of the time for me. And I did hear, well, uh, this this was in my this was in my head to, to to bring up because you did say recently that uh, you care a lot less about theater at the moment and that this this is really yeah this is really a profound um, it's been a profound project for me. All Souls is a web series. Um, principal photography's done. We're raising uh, money for post production right now, and I actually think we we hit it. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier today, I'm not entirely sure, but I think we did. So very exciting. Um, it tells the story of an Episcopal rector who is coming to terms with the fact that he actually no longer believes in God, but he is in a vulnerable and fragile position because he's trained to do this one thing. He has no experience doing anything else. His entire network of friends and family is all bound up in what he does. Mm-hmm. So he's essentially living in a big closet, and he's. Um, marginalized and alone and isolated and doesn't and he's trapped so it's sort of Breaking Bad meets the Episcopal Church in mm-hmm. some ways mm-hmm. uh, our series lead is played by um, Michael Potts who you may know uh, he played Brother Muzone in The Wire he was in the first season of True oh, Detective man. he yeah. is currently in The Prom on Broadway he was just cast in Denzel Washington's next August Wilson project for Netflix he's going to be in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom he was in um, the original Book of Mormon cast. He's incredibly talented, and yeah. he plays this rector with like great passion and and conflict and 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 anguish. And uh, our director is um, Tuana Ricks, and she's amazing. is an amazing director. When she's not behind the camera, she's in front of it. She's in the cast of Billions with Paul Giamatti, um, and she just is just a crackling, intelligent leader. Um, and then um, our third co-producer is Kiara Motley, an actor who I've worked with in the past. She played the title role in my play, The Butcher, at the Gulf Shore Playhouse. And the three of us are producing this thing, uh, and it's amazing. I can't. I'm just. I can't believe it's worked. Like it's my f- first real foray into film, and I've learned so much, and I've had so much fun working with people, doing a new thing. Uh, writing in a new way because it's a very different kind of writing than writing for the stage. And it feels like it's even more poetic because it's about visual symbols. Right. It's about yeah. pictures. And I just love it. So keep an eye out for it. Yeah. So we don't know when this episode's going to come out. And you, <laughs> no, don't know, you, don't know, you don't know when All Souls is going to come no, out. No, it will start as soon as the campaign is over, the fundraising campaign on my birthday, July 4th. Um, we go into post-production, and then this fall we submit to all the festivals, which if we get in are January, February, and then from there, who knows? Yeah. Right. So it'll be a while before the world will get to see it. The world will get yeah. to see it. And maybe never. Maybe HBO, if you're listening, right. um, you know, do a development deal with us for an hour-long version of the series. We, you know, it would be fun if it, if it never appeared. That would, that would also be good. But, yeah. Um, we're really proud. The footage is gorgeous, and everyone has done amazing work. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's fun. It feels like I'm back to sketches 
in my basement, written in my basement with my best friends. Right. Um, you know, those, and I'm thinking of the two young friends I had when I was 12 who I wrote with who are still in my life. Uh, both of them deeply still in my life and um, have supported me and, and I have supported them, uh, you know, for 40 years or almost 40 years. I feel like my life is integrated and whole and complete. It's a good thing. Maybe that's a nice note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I have to say, I'm so psyched that we were able to do this because we don't live in the same city. And I know, our but paths don't this cross was nice, often. right? Yeah, it was a long time coming. It was a long time coming, but you know, we knew it would work out eventually. Yeah. I, thanks to NNPN for flying me here <laughs> for LMDA to yeah. do a little alphabet salad so that we could do this for American Theater. Right on. Yeah. All right. right. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Gwydion, for not only giving me your time, but being so gracious when I had to tell you that I lost this recording and then 18 months later had to tell you I found it again. Ironic side note. At the beginning of our chat, I was telling Gwydion how I just lost the other conversation I recorded earlier that year and how bad I felt about it. Gwydion then told me a story about how the same thing happened to him while conducting an interview years earlier with a prominent poet he admired. If I believed in jinxes, I'd say I jinxed myself and doomed this recording to be lost. Gwydion's series Lost Souls is still making the industry rounds. Keep your eyes open for it, and if you work for HBO, give Gwydion a call. Music from this episode is from Scott Holmes. The theme song to the subtext is by International Pen Pal. This month's episode is edited by me. Our associate producer is KJ Jarbo. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent and the team at American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Hyannis by Carrie Bentley Quinn. Man, I love this play. It's set in Hyannis, Massachusetts, so it hits enough New England notes to make me homesick. But it's also a tight powerful play about family and addiction. It's so good. 